Hi, this is Dr. John Ankerberg. I invite you to dig into God's Word today with my dear friend, the late Dr. Wayne Barber, as he leads you verse by verse through the Bible. We're going to be looking at verse 20 today, and I've been telling you now, we're coming to a place that's going to get a little deeper. Remember that? Uh, it's been in a narrative, and it's been fun to follow the storyline, but now we're going to dig down. Now I want you to go down with me. I've already prayed. God, just take us on down so that we can understand what your word has to say. Verse 20 is all we'll be looking at today. It says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Now to get into that, I have to review. I want to keep explaining to you why I review. You cannot look at this passage unless you understand the context in which it's found. The Apostle Paul in verse 11 through 19 of chapter 2 has had a bold confrontation with Simon Peter. Peter had grown weak. Boy, you talk about growing weak. He, he had just cowered down when certain men, legalizers, Judaizers, the party of the circumcision had come over to Antioch. Man, he was brave when he was with, Peter, with James and John. But when he went over into Antioch, it was a different story altogether. Now, these were the same people that were discrediting Paul, which caused him to write what he writes in this epistle to the Galatian churches. And Peter, for sure, knew how they could hurt him back at home. These were the Jews who believed that circumcision, the law of Moses, was the way of righteousness. And of course, uh, they didn't look, look at salvation, but that's the way and the path of righteousness. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 12, it says, He withdrew and held himself aloof from those Galatian believers. Here he is over in their territory, and, and here they are, or, or the Gentile believers. Here he was in their territory, and all that had to happen was these people to come in amongst them. And he cowered down. He cowered down. Drew a line and said, I can't fellowship with you Gentile believers anymore because they are here. That was a big mistake. The Apostle Paul got right in Peter's face. The odd thing is, again, that how strong and clear he was in Jerusalem, but how weak he is here in Antioch when these Jewish men came over that way. They were called the party of the circumcision. You know what this does to me? It shows to me the pull that the law and those who preached the law still had on Simon Peter. Let me ask you a question this morning. How much pull does the law have on you today? You hear the message of grace, but there are certain people that influence you a different way. And when you're around them, you do differently. Well, let's review. Verse 11, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And the word condemned means guilty as charged. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Now the Gentiles were brothers in Christ. He saw that. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. Now one word I have not brought out is that word fearing. It's phobeo. Phobeo means to be terrified in this context. Now can you believe that? When they came around, Peter, of all people, was terrified of them being there. He was, these legalistic Judaizers 
uh, were so threatening to him that it caused him to withdraw and, and hold himself away from those Gentile believers. He fell into the trap of pleasing men instead of pleasing God. How often that happens in our life. We'd rather see a man or somebody smile back and be nice to us than we would God, his pleasure. Well, Peter's hypocrisy was contagious. It says in verse 13, and the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Somebody had to do something quick and do something quick, Paul did. In verse 14, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Simon Peter, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? You see, what happened was when he went over to the Gentile believers, he ate with them. There were no food laws. He demonstrated to them that the law was not his master anymore, that he now was saved by grace, just like they were saved by grace. And the law had no place in it. Now, by siding, it was a nonverbal commitment, but by siding with these Judaizers, what he was saying now is, the law that I said that I'm not even under anymore, we're going to put it upon you. And, and what Paul is saying is, you're a total contradiction in terms, Peter. I mean, your, your whole lifestyle is messed up here by what you're doing. He says in verse 15, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Peter, we were born Jews. And what that means is, not only, they were not proselyte Jews. That could be a Gentile who later in life wants to become a Jew, has, goes to the rite of circumcision, and et cetera, gets back up under the law of Moses. He said, we didn't come in that way. We were born of Jewish parents, circumcised the eighth day, put up under the law of Moses. We were raised up to obey the law. But Paul's point is, did all of that save us? Did our obedience to the law do anything to justify us? Just because we're Jewish, does that do anything? He says in verse 16, nevertheless, knowing knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. That word knowing is that little word we've seen so often, etho, you see it on the screen, to perceive clearly. There came a point in time as they grew up, the only path to righteousness that they were ever taught was the Mosaic law. But at some point in time, the Holy Spirit revealed to them, gave them a clear perception that that law could not save them. There was nothing in it that could save them that they had to be justified by, through faith in Christ Jesus. Now this is so powerful. Uh, Peter, you didn't get saved because you're Jewish. You didn't get saved because you obeyed the law. That kept you intact, that kept you behaving yourself, but that didn't cause you to be saved. And then he goes on. He says, even we, and he's talking to Peter. Peter, both of us, even we have believed in Christ Jesus. It's, as a Jewish, as two Jewish boys, we have believed in Christ Jesus. We, we realize that the law could not save us, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law shall how much flesh be justified? No flesh be justified. Then he says in verse 17, but if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners. And boy, this is something we all need to understand. We're born into this world, either Jew or Gentile. And every person that's born is born into sin. And that's what he's telling him. Whether you're Jewish, whether you're Gentile, whether you're religious or whether you're rebellious, you're all born into sin. We're all born into sin. He says, then is Christ then a minister of sin? 
And what he's saying is, if all of those laws we obeyed, Isaiah classified it, were just nothing more than filthy rags, sin before God, because man cannot produce righteous works. Then he says, are you telling me that if we put the law back on these Gentiles, make them circumcised, that somehow that's going to do anything for them? He says, no, you're making Christ a minister of sin. Basically, he's saying this is the most ridiculous thing, Peter, you've ever done. And he says, may it never be. And then in verse 18, the most powerful statement to me, he says, for if I rebuild, and Paul's speaking for himself right now. He says, for if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. And that word destroyed, I'd never seen it before until the last time I spoke. It's kataluo. It means to, to cut you free from something. And what a beautiful picture salvation becomes. The moment you bow before Jesus, you've cut yourself free from the bondage and the condemnation, the control of the law. And he says, Peter, why in the world would you want to go back and put the handcuffs back on? And Paul said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go back and rebuild what I have once destroyed. You know, you can understand the pull of the law on a Jewish person like Peter. Even Paul, which Paul has, has gone beyond being pulled back to it. But you can understand the pull. They, they grew up that way. That's all they ever knew. And you can understand why it continued to be a tendency to go back to it. But my problem is, this epistle is not written to Jewish people that have, gone, uh, that have continued under the bondage of the law. This epistle is written to Gentile believers who have bought the lie. They've been taught grace like nobody's ever been taught grace. Paul taught them. And they have gone back up under the law. Now what appeal did the law have to these Gentile believers. I can understand the Jewish guy, but I can't understand the, the Gentile. And then it dawned on me. All of our flesh, it doesn't matter if it's Gentile or Jew, all of our flesh responds to the law. We enjoy doing something for God. Granted, it might be for different reasons, but we all enjoy the credit we get for that which we have attained. And that's, that, I, it just hit me that nothing's changed. Like, like Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. You say, Wayne, that's not true today. And I mean, get off my back. This, this is back then. This is the 21st century. Yes, that's exactly right. But when we in the 21st century start emphasizing doing over being, then we have fallen into the same trap. See, we're not recognizing it, but we're falling into the same trap. Anytime I think I've got to do something so God will love me more or be pleased with me more, then I have automatically fallen back into that trap. My flesh would rather do something for God than let God do something through me. It's the old playing church game. That's all it is. Well, in Peter's case, by withdrawing fellowship from the Gentile believers, he didn't make a verbal statement. It was a nonverbal statement, but he denied everything he stood for back in Jerusalem with, with James and with John. He said by his actions that circumcision and the law was necessary to achieve righteousness. By withdrawing and holding himself aloof, he was embracing the message of law without having to say a word. And this is why Paul had to get into his face. When it came to the message of grace, nobody defended it and nobody stood for it like the Apostle Paul. And we'll see why in just a few moments. He says in verse 19, for through the law, I love this, I died to the law that I might live unto God. You see, Paul was just as much a part of the law as Peter when he grew up, but he says, I died to the law. What he means by that is the law told me to do certain things that I could not accomplish. 
The law can never accomplish what it demands. And therefore, he died to the law. It demands death for failure to accomplish what the law says. And he said, I died to it. But there's something else here. The tense of I died is aorist indicative active. Aorist indicative active is the tense that means I turned my back on it. I chose not to go that route anymore. There came a point in time in my life, he tells to Peter, he says, Peter, I, I turned my back on it. I'm not going back to it. You're still falling into that trap, but I am not going back to that law. If, if one single act of obedience to any law could produce righteousness, he says later on, then Jesus died needlessly. Now my mind begins to work when stuff like this happens in Scripture. When was it that Paul came to that conclusion? I know he wasn't seeking after God. I know he wasn't in a seminar or revival meeting when he got saved. What was he doing? He was on the Damascus Road going to arrest Christians, hopefully to kill them. That was his whole purpose in life. Get rid of this thing called the way. Get rid of these people called believers. And on that Damascus Road, he met the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And in that instant, in that instant on that road, automatically he understood it was something beyond what somebody could teach to him. It was something the Holy Spirit of God had to reveal that all of his years of obedience, obedience to the law and all of those years of what he gained according to that law all of a sudden was nothing. When he was made prostrate there before the risen Lord Jesus Christ. All of his past came clear to him in that moment as the Holy Spirit revealed the Lord Jesus to him. He felt condemned in the presence of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. That's what has to happen to every one of us. That's what salvation is all about. You can try to do good things all of your life and that will not save you and God is not impressed. But when you are bowed before him and the Holy Spirit of God has revealed the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, you know in an instant you're condemned, but you know in an instant he loves you and wants to save you and that's where salvation takes place and that's what happened to the Apostle Paul and look what he says on that Damascus Road he said Lord Lord what would you have me to do not law what would you have me to do but Lord what would you have me to do he had a brand new master in an instant of a moment when the Lord Jesus Christ was revealed to his heart and he tells Peter, he says, Peter, in that instant, I saw the futility of that law. I saw everything about it. I could not, acclaim, I could not attain what the law demands. And I fell and I bowed before the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, you can go your way if you want to, but I will never go back. I will never go back to a law that held me in bondage for so many years. Paul's righteousness is now only through Christ, not through the law. All that he used to be is dead. All of his religious efforts to be righteous are now dead. The law has no condemning power over him because the sentence of death has been carried out through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is Paul's argument? He says to Peter, if we as Jews live such religious lives and that didn't come close to saving us, then Peter, what are you doing? Why are you siding with those who say that obedience to the law is the means of righteousness? When we add anything to grace, we destroy the message at that moment. Righteousness can only be produced through our surrender to the Lord Jesus and His Word. 
You see, Christ living in Paul now enabled him to be what God demanded him to be. This is where we're headed. This is what grace is all about. It's either religion or it's grace, one or the other. You can't have both. They cannot mix. Now, it's so important here what Paul did not say. Sometimes you have to be careful to notice this. Paul did not say he was free to do as he pleased, and we'll see that in a moment. Uh, He's not free from his responsibility to God. No, sir. You're going to be a slave either way you go. But he is free from the means of the law to attain and to accomplish that responsibility before God. That's why he says in verse 19, he says, For through the law I died to the law, why? That I might live unto God. So a person who goes back up under this old, I've got do mentality, performance mentality, is a person who is not living unto God. He's living unto himself and doesn't even know it. He's not serving God. He's serving a law. And he's trying to attain something that God has already won and bought for him. Paul had become a brand new creature in Christ. Christ now lives in him. He wrote in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13, For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And now we enter into verse 20. Do you see the, you see the context? You see a man that, like Simon Peter who's been so bold at certain times, who denied Jesus and now he even denies the message of grace for fear of what people are going to say about him. And it shows the fact that he hasn't yet become resolved that the message of grace is the only way. It's the only way. It's what the gospel says. Well, let's ease into verse 20 and see what Paul says about himself. He continues. First of all, Paul makes a proclamation. Paul makes a proclamation. I have been crucified with Christ. Now, that little phrase, I have been, is perfect passive indicative. You say, Wayne, will you quit doing that? No, I will not. I want you to learn it. It's not in English, and that's why we don't understand it. Perfect tense means something happened over here that puts me into the state of being I'm in over here. And we've got to understand that. You people who believe you can lose your salvation, wrestle with the perfect tense. Perfect tense means it happened. It happened. Therefore, this is why I am where I am right now. And a passive voice means that Paul did not initiate the action. He said, what's that? In verse 19, is active voice. He initiated it. He turned his back on the law. In verse 20, it's passive voice. God did something. When you turn away from the law and you bow before the resurrected Christ, he then does something in your life. What is it he did? What happened back here that puts Paul in the state of being he's in right now? He says, I have been crucified with Christ. The word for crucified there is sistavro. Uh, it comes from two Greek words, seen, which means intimate, can't be separated, and stavro. Now, the word seen, again, is that with. There's two widths, and we'll talk about that later on. There's two widths. There's the width of association, like we're with each other right now, but anybody can leave at any moment. Some of you have mentally already left, and so therefore we're, we're with each other right now. That's meta. Seen means we're together and nobody can separate us. That's the width he uses here. And then the word stavro means to crucify to destroy or to kill, to put to death. And Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. There has been a death. Oh, we need to understand this. Technically, when Christ was crucified, Paul says, I have been co-crucified with Christ. Now think about this. This is where we're going to go down another level. When Christ was crucified, what he's saying is, I was on the cross with him. 
Remember growing up, and you heard the song all the time, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? And I used to love to hear people sing it, especially a bass sing that thing. But I didn't have a clue what he's talking about. Were you there? What do you mean? Was I there? I was born in 1943. How am I going to be there? But the song was pretty. Were you there when they crucified? <laughs> yes, sirree, we were there. That's what Paul is saying. By the way, you were there also. You were there also. He not only had you on his mind, he had your sins upon himself. And, and he became sin for you and I. He took our sin to the cross. Christ took all that Paul was as a sinner to the cross. Paul had no awareness of this, that the debt had already been paid. These people who have to do this and do that and do this to earn their salvation, what do you mean? Jesus has already paid the debt. You say, well, Wayne, that's universalism, isn't it? If that's the case, everybody's saved. No, 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 no. Until you put your faith into Jesus, it does not become yours. Technically, he was on the cross with Jesus, but experientially and positionally, that had to occur when he received Jesus into his heart. Wouldn't it be great somebody call you up? Wouldn't it be awesome? And say, Wayne, I've got an SUV, brand new. No, let's make it a Ford 250, double cab. Four-wheel drive, diesel. Climb a tree if you put that thing in the right gear. Leather upholstery. Oh, I mean, just one of those nice, a winch on the back so you pull the elk up on it don't have to pick it up. I mean, it's one of those good things. And somebody calls you up and says, hey, Wayne, I've got your Ford 250 ready to go. Come on down and pick it up. It's paid for. And I can run around from now on telling everybody I got a Ford 250. And you look at me and say, well, where is it? And I say, well, it's down there on the lot. Then it's not yours yet. You haven't picked it up. You see, even though he technically died for the sins of the whole world, not everybody's received what he's paid for. And that's what salvation's all about. Experientially, it came into Paul's life on the Damascus Road when the Lord Jesus, the resurrected Christ, stopped him in his tracks, and he understood that the law will never cut it, and he received Jesus into his heart. What had happened on the cross now became his, and he was a believer. Crucifixion means death. Now listen to me. When Christ came into Paul, in the person of the Holy Spirit, the old Paul died. All of his rights to himself died. All of his rights to think as he pleased died. All of his rights to do as he pleased Died. He signed the death warrant to his rights to himself when he received Jesus into his heart. He turned all of his emotional impressions, all of his intellectual beliefs into a moral verdict against the disposition of sin, which says, I can do what I want to do as I choose. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. The old legalistic Saul became the apostle Paul. He's a brand new person. What made him different? The Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ came to live in him. Second Corinthians that he writes to the Corinthian church, 517 says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. So there has been a death. I have been crucified with Christ. I have no rights to myself. I have no rights to do as I please, to think as I please. I bowed down and I lost them when I received Jesus into my life. The law is not my master. Jesus now is my master. Turn to Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 5. And Romans and Galatians are commentaries on each other. Uh, remember, Galatians is Paul writing Romans when he's mad. <laughs> 
And so it's the same thing. It just expands what Galatians talking about. Only two epistles that you can find this beautiful doctrinal teaching of grace as clear as it is in Scripture. Romans 6, 1 through 5. And Paul does a wonderful job explaining this. Verse 1 in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then, he says to these Romans, are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? You see, what I just said a moment ago has got to start you. The moment you become a believer, you have to understand that grace never means I have the right to do as I please. You never have that right. And so he starts off that way. And he says, do you think that grace allows you to do what you want? And then he says in verse 2, may it never be. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin? And another way of explaining sin is the right to do as I please. That's what sin is. You take the, the middle letter of the word sin and you've got everything you need to talk about. The middle letter of the word pride is the same thing. When you we died to the right to do as we please, how shall we still then live in it? We died. The big eye has been taken out of the equation. Then he says in verse 3, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Now that word baptized means immersion, yes, but it also means identification. If you had a bowl of dye, a great big old bowl of dye, red dye, and you took a white cloth and you put that white cloth and baptized it into the dye, you have submerged it into the dye. Well, that's good, it's in the dye, but something else has happened. The cloth has become identified with the red dye. And now, not, not only is the cloth in the dye, but the dye is in the what? Is in the cloth. You don't have a white cloth anymore. You've got a red cloth. And this is what happened at salvation. Not only were we baptized into Him, but now He lives in us. Verse 4, Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness. And the word newness is kainos. Kainos means total qualitatively different way of living. You don't live unto yourself as you did before you got saved. Now you live unto Him and He is your Lord and He is your Master. He says in verse 5 again, For if we have become united with Him, oh, I love this, in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, the word like, united with, that little word seen with, with, which with is it, Wayne? Is it meta, association with, or is it intimate with? It's seen, that's the word. And phutos is the second part of the word. It means to be two things are grafted together. They become one, never to be separated again. Now, I've used the illustration of a biscuit here so many times, you're tired of hearing it. So I'm going to change it and use another one. <laughs> this past week, you know, for being from the South, we get picked on. Jim and I and Don and Dinah get picked on all the time. Our accent. Have y'all listened to how you talk? I mean, our accent. <laughs> we'll go into a restaurant and they'll say, would you just talk to us? And another thing we get kidded about is when we go into a restaurant, we say, we want unsweet tea. And they'll look right back at you and say, okay. As if, what other kind is there? How many of you have been to the South and know where I'm going with this? <laughs> you know. You go to the South, you better tell them you want unsweet tea because they don't drink anything but sweet tea. And you want mote. Sweet tea. And this past week uh, we were talking about how do you make sweet tea? And I, I don't know how to make anything. And, and, and they said, well, you, you have to get the, the tea boiling and hot. Then you add the sugar. 
I said, it doesn't make any sense. Why don't you put the sugar in it when it's cold? And I was told very clearly, it won't dissolve when it's cold. It only dissolves when it's hot. And the difference is, when you put the, sweet, the sugar in when it's hot, it'll be sweet from now on, friend. You cannot ever take that sweet taste out of it. Why? Because there's something about when it's heated up, the sugar and the, and the tea just sort of melt into one, and two different things become one, changing the dimension of both. Now, that's exactly what happens when you got saved. You were sweet tea for Jesus. <laughs> I think Steve McVeigh uses an illustration like that. I've spoken with Steve McVeigh, he does grace walking. I've spoken with him three different times. And I think he used an illustration like that, but that really came out of this past week. I wasn't copying from anybody. That's really happened in a conversation this past week. And it dawned on me that, hey, that, that, that sugar will not, will not in any way dissolve in cold tea. It sits in the bottom. You ever seen it? It sits right down in the bottom of the glass. You've got to keep stirring it, stirring it, stirring it. And if you could do something to keep it in the bottom of the glass, you could separate the two. But if it's hot and you put the sugar in, you cannot separate it. That's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, the Lord Jesus, you've been united together with him. Remember, Jesus doesn't like anything that's cold or lukewarm. He, he, he kind of likes it when it's hot. Although he did say, I wish you was cold or hot instead of being lukewarm. Just get us hot. And salvation, you're spiritually hot. And the sweetness of his presence comes and meshes itself into us. And forevermore, we are changed. Un we cannot be separated from one another. Now, what happened to salvation? Jesus came to live in you. There's been a death and a, brand, and a resurrection of a brand new person. Now, when we become a believer, what we were in Adam is gone. I hope we understand this morning that everybody is either in Adam or in Christ. So you only have two options. You're born into Adam. And only by putting your faith into Christ can you ever be in Christ. That's what we call born again or born from above. When we are in Christ, all of our sinful past has been erased. All of the believer's rights have been surrendered to him. Christ has come into the believer to rule and reign in us. We, as Peter says, have partaken of the divine nature. Christ has come in, helped us to experience the newness of life. He's given us a brand new beginning. But there's a problem. And this is where people don't understand. This is why you've got to start off understanding he's Lord. We still have the potential to sin. Peter was a believer, fell right back up under the law. You think that's not sin? You see, we all have the tendency to do that. What, where does that come from? Well, verse 6 of Romans chapter 6 beautifully brings it out. Paul uses the word crucified as a metaphor, and look what he does here. In verse 6, knowing this, that our old self, what we used to be in Adam, was crucified with him. It's dead. It is gone. You can never be what you used to be because God lives in you. It was put to death. Why? that our body of sin might be done away with. Now, first thing you've got to realize is you have a body of sin. Everybody's chasing around after the devil. That's convenient. What's he going to do if he catches you? Gum you to death? Jesus yanked all of his teeth out at the cross. It's not the devil that's my problem. It's not the devil that's your problem. What's my problem is what I look at in the mirror every morning when I get up. I want you all to do something for me tomorrow morning when you get up. Say, good morning, body of sin. And just understand where your problems are. It's not your wife, it's not your husband, it's not your children, not your neighbor. It's not that person that will not drive over 15 miles an hour <laughs> in a 30-mile zone. You can't get around them. It's not that person. It's you. It's me. I've got to deal with me every day of my life. The word destroyed, King James Version says destroyed. New American Standard says done away with. Why they translated this way, I don't know. You check it out. See if it be so. The word is katargeo. See it on the screen. 
It means to be shifted into neutral. Kacha, down. Argeo means to be disengaged. Disengaged, when power has been disengaged, when it's been made idle or inactive. Disengaged. Now, when Christ came into our life, he didn't take the transmission that causes sin and throw it out. But what he did, he disengaged the transmission. Are you with me? In other words, we still have the potential to sin, but because he lives in us now and he is our Lord, and if we'll live under his lordship saying yes to him, then all of that power of sin is continuing to stay in neutral. It cannot do a thing to harm me. But when I do like Peter did or others have done, and I step back up under the law, immediately what I've done is shifted it right back into gear, and that's when sin takes over in my life. And all believers need to understand that. You start with the understanding when you come in, not only are you under grace, He now is Lord. The big eye has been removed. And whatever He says, we yield to. He empowers what He says. So that's what Paul is trying to clear up. What happened at salvation? But one of the things it's doing in the context of Romans, in the context of Galatians, being in Christ now means that the law has no claim over us anymore. No control and has no condemning, condemning power. Look in chapter 7 of Romans. Then, and if this doesn't excite you, this will be a good morning to get saved. Romans chapter 7 and verse 1. Romans 7 verse 1. Just flip over a page or maybe on the same. He says in verse 1, Or do you not know, brethren? And I love that, agnoeo. Are you walking around without this understanding? I want to say this to people all the time, especially when they blow up in your face and send you emails that are drive-by shootings. I want to say, do you... Do you not have this understanding? Bless your heart. Are you walking around without this understanding? Do you not understand this? He says, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. Not the law, there's no definite article there. Just anybody who understands law. The Gentiles were in Rome, that's who made the law. The Jews understood it from a different perspective. What is the rule about law that we've got to understand? That the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he what? Lives. So as long as you're alive, the law has jurisdiction over it. You can't get free from it. I took a shortcut the other day coming to church. I think it was Layton Drive. It was what I was on. I've never driven down Layton much. I didn't realize it's, the speed limit is not 40. It's not 35. It's 25. You ever tried to go 25 miles an hour in your car? In the day we live in, it's almost like you stopped and you get out to check to see if the tires have gone. I was going down the street. I was on the phone talking to somebody. And I turned the corner, and there he stood with a badge. And he said, <laughs> I could have acted as if I didn't understand, but I thought I'd go ahead and pull over. <laughs> I pulled over, and the nicest policeman, I'm telling you, I hope he's watching this today, because he is my friend. He walked up, and he said, don't, I showed him my license. He said, Mr. Barber, I, I guess you don't have any, any idea what the speed limit on this road is. I said, you know, you're exactly right. I ain't got a clue. And he said, well, you don't have any idea how fast you're driving? I said, nope. Been talking on the phone. I didn't have a clue how fast I'm driving. He said, well, you were doing 38 to 25 miles on. And I said, well, you got me. He says, you know, I know you, don't I? <laughs> oh, Lord, thank you. <laughs> but I said, I don't know. Do you? He was so nice. He said, you know, where do you work? I said, I'm the pastor over at Hoffman Town Church. He said, that's it. I watch your program, and I want to tell that policeman, if he's watching today, I love you in Jesus. Because <laughs> he gave me a warning. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. 
I could have come up with all kinds of excuses. I could have said, I haven't had a ticket in 25 years. No, why would you? Look, you? He says, hey, as long as you're living, the law has jurisdiction over you. Now, he makes that very clear. Then in verse 2 of chapter 7, he says, For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. Now, don't make this a marriage passage. Make the main thing the plain thing. What's he saying? In order for me to be free from one relationship and have a relationship with Christ, what has to happen? There has to be a what? A death. Oh, you see where he's headed? What did we just read back in chapter 6? Hang on. I am crucified with Christ. There's been a death. He says in verse 3, So then while if her husband is living, she is joined to another man. She tries to have a relationship with another one. She shall be called an adulteress, but if her husband dies... She is free from the law so that she's not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. And what he's saying is, you can't coexist with two relationships at the same time. It's kind of like what he's saying to Peter. Peter, what are you doing? You're either under grace or you're under law. You can't mix the two. You can't mix the two. One's got to go for you to be under the other. And then he says in verse 4, So I, I just love this. Therefore, my brethren... You also were made to die to the law. Oh, praise God. How did that happen? He tells you, through the body of Christ. What does he mean? When he was crucified, you were crucified. And when you receive the one who accomplished all that the law demands, and he comes to live in you, you're set free, cut free from the law. It can never control you. It can never condemn you again. The only way it has any potential is if you choose to go back up under it. That's what Paul's trying to get across. He says, to him who was raised from the dead that we might bear fruit unto God. There has been a death. The death warrant to our self-esteem has been signed. Our right to self my right to do to myself has been revoked. I have, I have died. I have been crucified with Christ. That's what Paul is saying. The law's demands have no power over a dead man. It's a magnet, yes it is, to the flesh. It continues to pull to the flesh. But as long as we turn to him who conquered that pull and conquered that magnet, and as long as we're saying yes to him, then that law can do nothing to us. The power of sin, which it produces, sin functions. It takes opportunity with the law, it goes on to say in chapter 7. But as long as we're saying yes to him, the power of sin has been disengaged. So Paul makes a proclamation. What I used to be is dead. I've been crucified with Christ. Peter, are you listening to me? Is your theology straight? Do you understand this? For you to be back up under the law is only a choice you've made. Christ has set you free. You have a new master. Not the law, but the Lord Jesus Christ. So he makes a proclamation. Does that excite your heart this morning like it does mine? But then he states a paradox. Now a paradox is not two doctors. You know that, don't you? Some of y'all are slow. But a paradox is a statement that apparently contradicts itself. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. And then he said, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It's no longer I who live. So complete has Paul's death in Christ been that his whole personality is now merged with Christ. It's not me anymore. It's Christ living in me. Christ lives in me, present active of zeo. Zeo is the verb. 
And it's the word that means the essence of life. And he's saying, Christ is the essence of my life. You see something good in me, then point back to the essence of my life. He's my Lord. He's my master. When I say yes to him, he manifests his presence in my life. He is the essence of my life. That's what he says in Philippians 1, 21. For to me to live is Christ. Same word. He says over in chapter 3 and verse 4 of Colossians, when Christ who is our life returns. And he says, Christ, present tense, is living in me. Right now, man, how many people come into the building and say, Johnny, 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 shut up. You're in God's house. And little Johnny says, who's? You're in God's house. And little Johnny grows up thinking every time he gets near that big building down the street, you better be quiet because God lives in that building. No, he doesn't. He lives in you and I. He came in here. Hey, yes, he's omnipresent, but he came in. We brought him in here. He lives in you. You say, Brother Wayne, I'm so alone and I'm so lonely. No, you're not. He lives in you. The lady, four-year-old lady, precious man, lady, when I was pastoring over in Mississippi, came to me one day and she said, I've never known that. Do you mean God lives in me? I said, yes, ma'am, he does. I didn't say that. He said it. She went home, saw her Wednesday night. She looked like she'd been run over by a truck. She looked awful. And I said, Miss Boatwright, you look terrible. And she said, well, thanks a lot. But she said, I'll tell you, I said, what's wrong? And she said, you told me God lives in me. I've been living that trailer by myself for so many years. It just dawned on me I wasn't by myself. She said, since I understood that, I have talked his ear off for the last three days. <laughs> God lives in me. Now listen to me. The one who fulfilled the law, now listen, listen, lives in you. Now what are you doing trying to fulfill what he has already fulfilled? Are you with me? You see, this is the whole point. What are we trying to add to what he has already accomplished? And the one who gave the law, the one who fulfilled the law, now lives in us. And when we obey him, the fruit of his spirit is love, against which there is no law. We read last week from Matthew 5, 17. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it. And we read in Romans 8, 3, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He took care of the law. How? As a man, the God-man. He represented us, and then he went to the cross for us. What in the world are we doing going back up under the law mentality? Spurgeon said, if I do something for God and ask him to bless it, it's like taking dirty, filthy rags and pinning them on his spotless garments and saying, oh God, would you accept this from me? He's not interested in what I can do for him. He's interested in what he wants to do in and through me. Well, one day we're going to be in heaven, and it's not going to be a clock. <laughs> i got to wind this thing down. Don't worry. We'll pick it right up next week. Let me just show you this. What a, parody, what, what a wonderful truth here. He lives in us, right? Now watch this. For if while we were enemies, Romans 5.10, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more... Having been reconciled, this is the death reconciled us. Watch this now. We shall be saved, not by his death, but by his what? By his life. Now, where is that life? It's in me. Whoa, whoa. Romans 6:10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. What is he doing? He lives in me, pulling me towards the Father at all times. When I get in my room and I'm flipping over, the, I'm in a house and I'm flipping the television remote, remember remote, 
And Dinah says, what are you watching that for? Before she ever says it, the Holy Spirit said, what are you watching that for? I'm pulling you towards the Father. I'm pulling you towards the Father. You realize how many hurdles we have to step over? He's given us a prejudiced will to do what's right. It's his heart, his nature in us. When a person chooses to sin as a believer, how many hurdles he has to step over to get that far away from what God is saying? God, if, I, if you told me to play basketball like Kobe Bryant, man, he scored 55 points the other night. Michael Jordan, look out. All I can tell you is that Kobe's going to have to come and get inside of me because nobody plays basketball like he does. If you tell me, Wayne, you better leave here and live the Christian life, then Jesus better get inside of me. Now listen to what I'm about to say. Because he is the only one who ever lived it. Oh, Brother Wayne, I live it every day. No, you don't. Quit thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Get out of his way and let Jesus be Jesus in you. Stop trying to impress him. He's not impressed. The only time he's impressed when he looks at us and sees himself. Well, how do I appropriate it? That's next week, but let me just read this to you. And I've got to quit. i got to quit. How many of you like Oswald Chambers? Boy, I do. He's dead now. On, on Galatians 2.20, I just happened to find this in my study this past. Listen to this. No one is ever united with Jesus Christ until he's willing to relinquish not sin only, but his whole way of looking at things. To be born from above of the Spirit of God means that we must let go, we must let go before we lay hold. And in the first stages, it is the relinquishing of all pretense. What our Lord wants us to present to him is not goodness, not honesty, not endeavor, but real solid sin. That's all we have. That is all he can take from us. And what does he give in exchange for our sin? Real, solid righteousness. But we must relinquish all pretense of being anything, all claim of being worthy of God's consideration. Then the Spirit of God will show us what further there is to relinquish. There will have to be the relinquishing of my, my claim to my right to myself in every phase. Am I willing to relinquish my hold on all I possess? My hold on all my affections? and on everything, and to be identified with the death of Jesus Christ, there is always a sharp, painful disillusionment to go through before we do relinquish. When a man really sees himself as the Lord sees him, it is not the abominable sins of the flesh that shock him, but the awful nature of the pride of his own heart against Jesus Christ. When he sees himself in the light of the Lord, the shame and the horror and the desperate conviction come home. If you're up against a question of relinquishing, go through the crisis. Relinquish all, and God will make you fit for all that He requires of you. For additional resources or to view our TV program, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org. 